we shifted last week's sermon to this week. So we are picking up once again in Deuteronomy. We're going to be looking at the seventh commandment. Um, uh, I just want to say it sort of as a, just as a sort of an awareness. This is a delicate uh, subject, right? And I realize that we have whole families here among us. And so I just want you to know that I will, I think it's an important topic. We still have to talk about it. I will try to use as best as I can the, the, the language that is faithful to scripture and yet understanding of the nature of our mixed audience um, without shortchanging uh, the biblical material. Um, and I would also add to this that this is such an important topic uh, for the church and for uh, the Christian community at large and for the world, really, uh, that it, it, it's so easy to want to sort of dance over it and skim it because, one, the culture is so radically different than the biblical ethic that we have before us. And secondly, it's such an intimate, personal subject, it makes it difficult to talk about as a church uh, in any sort of uh, mixed company. So, um, I don't want to do either two things that have been sort of typical, I would say, in the church, but I probably will fall on one side or the other in your minds, and I'm doing the best I can. But the two ways we fall as a church is either uh, the preacher gets up and rails against all the ills of society um, and this sin of sexual brokenness, for better words, becomes the only unforgivable sin that ever existed. Um, or second, we just gloss over it and ignore it um, and put it in the pile of unmentionables, things we don't want to talk about, leaving everyone wondering how in the world do we live faithfully in a world that is saturated, saturated uh, with sexuality. So I'm going to attempt to thread that needle. We'll see how it goes. Um, uh, well, with that, we're going to look at two texts. The first is from Deuteronomy. Now, there were many texts that could have chosen from Deuteronomy, uh, but I think many of them would have distracted from what I want to say, uh, sort of bigger picture stuff. Um, And then secondly, I think sometimes we look at the law, the Old Testament law, and think how harsh it was written. It was at a different time. God must have been angry back then, and he got nice by the time we get to the New Testament or something. Like That's an ancient heresy, by the way. Um, But I want to show you that actually Jesus as well as the apostles, deal with this topic. And they don't deal with it lightly. Um, Jesus does not deal with it lightly. Um, So we're going to read from the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' uh, words on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, So first, Deuteronomy, a verse to kind of give us a framework from the Old Testament passages, a sort of general, the general law as it's stated in Deuteronomy 22.22. And then from Matthew 5. So hear God's word. If a man is found lying with, his, with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. And then the Gospel of Matthew. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members 
and that your whole body go into hell. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is hard stuff. Uh, It's personal. Maybe painful to us in so many ways. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be gracious as we as we look into this, that you would uh, help me to be to be to be faithful in presenting your word, to be gracious and full of the gospel hope. Uh, that we would have a vision for sexuality that can be redeemed, that is uh, pictures the beautiful intimacy that you have with your church. Lord, we need your help. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the big deal? That was the, the way I titled this sermon. When I, even before I, I come up with this stuff, I kind of read through the text, come up with a plan, before I really delve into the text at all. And I have to come up with a, a title. Um, and this was the one that just struck me as I kept reading through Scripture. And what a big deal Scripture makes of it, of the issue of adultery and, by extension, uh, our sexuality. And this question was running through my head as I was studying. There's no escaping it. The Bible, the law, the Old Testament, the prophets, Jesus, the apostles, they all make a huge deal about sexual purity. But in our current world, there's a different law at work, right? One that says quite the opposite of Scripture, which is your desires define you. You are defined by your most deep desires. And these types of desires that we're talking about today are maybe the most deeply rooted desires and therefore define you most of all. I had a a, a book, a set of books on the seven deadly sins. Somebody gave them to me. They're, They're published by Oxford University Press. They are not, you know, Christian in that sense. And, you know, so you have one for each of the deadly sins that uh, the the medievals used to put, and one of them is lust. And so I thought, well, I should read this book since this is the topic at hand. So I'm going to go ahead. It's a short little book and see just kind of how these um, scholars handled the topic. And the author's aim, as he put it, right, this is Oxford University Press, and I think the New York Public Library had a wanted to put together this little thing on the seven deadly sins. The aim, at least in this this, uh, volume on lust, he said, was to speak up for lust. To make a defense of lust. And he spent the rest of this short book examining the topic through the lens of Western thought, beginning with the Greeks and ending with the likes of Hume and Sartre and other philosophers. And in the end, he skewered Christians like St. Augustine, who actually spoke quite, and I, and I encourage you to go back and read the confessions if you've never done that, but Augustine's confessions are very uh, significant, especially on this particular issue in Augustine's life as he was coming to faith. Uh, he was very much broken by his own uh, sexual brokenness. But this author skewered the likes of Augustine for his prudishness and suppression of desire, and he praised any and all Greek or modern poet or philosopher who was unabashed in their sexuality. In essence, he was saying, what's the big deal, Christian? Enjoy life. Of course, there are still societal boundaries, right? Uh, The recent Me Too movement 
has highlighted some of these boundaries, such as mutual consent between adults. Uh, there are still boundaries societally on the issue. And adultery itself, while uh, still frowned upon, generally speaking, but it's not quite uh, as bad as some other things, but it's, it's still something that's frowned upon. But these boundaries, notwithstanding, we as a society have wholeheartedly rejected the biblical ethic of intimacy within the confines of marriage. Just, that's, we've rejected it. We see it as oppressive and repressive. But I want to turn this idea on its head. I think the opposite is true. It is actually enslavement to our desire that is oppressive. And that true freedom, true freedom, in this arena is found in Christ alone. But I think I'm going to have to take some time to prove this to you a little bit. Uh, so that's what I want to do this morning. I want us to see that the greater joy and freedom that we have comes through Christ and his way and his law and not through our expression of our deepest desires. Uh, so we'll look at this in three parts. The heart of the problem, the goodness of the gift, and freedom in Christ. So first, the heart of the problem. And, and I, we have to acknowledge the severity of the law. The law states that if a man is found lying with, a, with uh, another, a woman who's not his wife, and the two of them are presumably caught, uh, they both are subject to death, and the evils should be purged uh, from their midst. And this seems, as I've already noted, to, to, to be a very harsh, uh, uh, sort of against our modern sensibilities. And I think if we're prone to think of the Old Testament as harsh, uh, we fail to recognize Jesus as that way. We think of Jesus as the one who ate with sinners and tax collectors. He was all about love and mercy and grace. And yet here are his words. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. And you can read into that. And therefore is subject to the penalty of the law of the Bible already. In fact, he goes farther. He says, and if you don't recognize the danger that you're in, in other words, if you're not fighting this off tooth and nail, literally pulling out your eyes and cutting off your arms, if you're not facing the reality of this sin, you face the fires of hell. That was Jesus. That's not me, the preacher. I know, you know, we like think hellfire and brimstone preachers. This was Jesus. We like to find loopholes. That's, that's just how we are, right? We like to find loopholes in, in these things. And we might be tempted to read uh, the Deuteronomy passage and think, well, he's talking about another man's wife or a woman's husband, etc. That's a, that's a homewrecker. Of course I'm not for homewrecking. That, that's terrible. The law doesn't seem to be applied to my desire for uh, 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 just simply my desire. Or uh, it doesn't necessarily talk about my dalliances with unmarried persons. That seems to be safe, right? The, the people that don't have attachments or kids or families. Um, we, can, we can find a loophole that way. But ironically, Jesus was addressing the loopholes. That was his whole purpose. The, the, the religious leaders uh, uh, 
viewed uh, this law in very concrete ways. They said, if I actually commit adultery with another woman, then I've broken this commandment. But up to that point, I'm safe. One commentator put it this way, said, in their view, they, the rabbis, and their pupils, kept the seventh commandment, provided that they avoided the act of adultery itself. They thus gave a conveniently narrow definition of sexual sin and a conveniently broad definition of sexual purity. See, that, that, that was their goal, to find the loophole, to, narrow the, to, to limit it and narrow it. But Jesus blows this out of the water. If you look at a woman lustfully, lustful intent, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. It's not without cause that the law is firstly directed at men. Do you notice that? That's how the laws are written. It's not without cause. Why? Well, we are all men and women subject to sexual brokenness in many ways. But there is something, I think, unique, men. And maybe as a man, I'm speaking directly to you. And I want to just take an aside here and address the men of the church specifically. But it can apply to women as well. Don't miss the words that Jesus spoke. You have already committed adultery with her in your heart. Catch that. That's not a little thing. I think sometimes, you know, we're, we're, we're prone to feel lots of guilt, aren't we, over sexual sin, men? We, we are. We, we, we hide in the corners of our, of our rooms and are, are, are sort of broken by our sexual brokenness. And we, 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 we often feel guilt, but we think on the other side, this isn't that big a deal. Everybody has this problem. It's not really that big a deal. You've committed adultery with her. In your heart. We need to take seriously the lust that so quickly comes upon us. We need to be serious about killing it off. I would highly encourage you not to let it live in the dark unattended. Men, it is too easy. It is too easy. We try to kill it off in our own strength. We weep about it. And it never goes away. As an encouragement to you, I encourage you to talk to us, the elders. We have more now. (laughs) Um, We can help. But it's got to come to light. There's another encouragement. There's a great organization, and I'm going to keep pounding this out. So people who've heard me talk on the subject already, I've I've already mentioned this. Um, There's an organization called Harvest USA out of 10th Presbyterian Church in um, um, Philadelphia. Uh, And it is a great organization, great godly organization. I know the folks there. And they have tons of resources online. Uh, my hope is that we may even be able to bring them in at some point to come talk. But, but if you are struggling, if you're still scared and you don't know who to talk to, go online to Harvest USA. Go there when you face temptation. Well, anyway, that was an aside. 
just to get us thinking. But look how seriously Jesus talks of dealing with this sin. If, if your eye or your hand caused you to sin, gouge it out and cut it off. Because it's better to lose a body part than to be thrown into hell. Uh, this is figurative. Uh, I read a story in one of the commentaries that suggested that in the, in, you know, in the early church, sort of after the early church in the period of, sort of the early Middle Ages, that there were ascetics who would literally go do this sort of thing. They would cut off members. They would mutilate themselves. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, the reality is much worse because it says, yes, if your eye causes you to sin, but what does he really say the heart of the issue is? He says, if you've committed adultery, where? So, by extension, what should you gouge out? So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, this is a huge thing we need to deal with. His point is, it's a big deal, a huge deal. Your sexuality is a matter of life and death. You are to do whatever it takes to get rid of that lust. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Well, this brings us to a question. This is, why is sexual sin such a big deal in the Bible in all its forms? From lust in the heart to acting on those desires. And this, this is the second point. I want us to look at the goodness of the gift. The reason this is such a big deal is, is because it's wrapped up in this idea of covenant. Now, if I was to call up, and I wouldn't do this, but if I was to call up my high schoolers and ask them, what is a covenant? Looking over at Matthew. We just talked about it for a few weeks, so they should have it in their mind. But I'll just remind us all, what is a covenant? A covenant is a relational bond or contract on sort of a basic level. And the concept of covenant is introduced in the Bible at the very outset of scriptures. Um, But it runs all through. In fact, one of the things that you could say about scripture is it is, in fact, sort of one big covenantal document. It's about the way God relates to his people. I am your God. You are my people. That's the sort of covenantal language. Um, But really, right at the beginning of Genesis, we see this laid out for us. God made a covenant with Adam saying, essentially, obey me and have eternal life. That is, continually eat of the tree of the life all your days, eternally. But disobey me. That is, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as I've told you not to, and you will surely die. So that's sort of the the framework in Genesis 2. We have that covenantal language. But there's another covenant in Genesis 2. Did you know that? There's another covenant in Genesis 2. Follows immediately after all that stuff about uh, obedience to Adam. And this is the covenant that he established At the end of chapter 2, and it was a covenant between Adam and Eve. It's the covenant of marriage. When Eve is formed from Adam and is presented to him, he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And Moses, responding to this, he's the author and he's writing a comment, relates this and he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Beautiful covenant language of marriage. If you've ever been to a wedding, a Christian wedding, these words are read. The picture of 
intimacy and love and fellowship and union, all of that right there. And it's not a coincidence that these two covenants stand side by side. This grand covenant of God with man, obey me and live, disobey me and die. It's not a coincidence that this marriage covenant is placed right there. The marriage covenant was to reflect the covenant of God made with Adam, to be his God for Adam and for Adam to be his people. And of course, Adam and Eve did what? They broke the covenant with God. They sinned against God and they fractured the relationship. And the breaking of that relationship with God, which ultimately leads to death, also had an impact on that little covenant of marriage. What happens immediately after the fall? Adam and Eve start fighting each other, hiding from God, covering themselves up. They were full of shame. They were no longer naked and unashamed. Instead, they carried guilt and shame and enmity and strife in their relationship as well, hiding and blaming. And in that moment, that moment, sexual brokenness entered the world. Mankind was henceforth in bondage to their sinful desires, including those desires. Anyone who's ever tried to put off such desires knows the kind of grip it can have on your life. It feels as if it owns you, doesn't it? It feels as if it is you. And this is why the world says it is you, right? They they reject this idea of God because, well, to say that it's shameful means my very core of my being, something is desperately wicked and wrong, and and I can't live with that, so I'm going to call that thing that is desperately wicked and wrong right. I'm going to call evil good. Good, evil. It owns the brokenness and allows those deep, seemingly primal urges to define who we are. Yet God, in his infinite wisdom, set out to redeem us from this bondage and to make a new covenant, one not based on our faithfulness, to the relationships and his relationship with us and our ability to overcome sin. But he based it on his faithfulness and his ability to overcome sin. And once again, marriage, covenant that was established right there, the intimacy within marriage plays a role in picturing God's redeeming grace. Paul notes in Ephesians 5, he says that this marriage covenant was meant to be a picture of the way Christ loves the church. And so the way a husband loves his wife exclusively, sacrificially, intimately, was meant to be a picture of the exclusive, sacrificial, intimate love of God for his people in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you see now, I'm I'm trying to paint this picture, that this thing that we think of as just sort of part of who we are, but is kind of just for us and pleasure and procreation and whatever, is actually much bigger It's tied to our relationship with God himself. It's a picture of that. It's meant to be. 
Our sexuality is meant to be an expression of God-like love and intimacy to our spouse exclusively. I want to think for a minute how following the world's vision of sexuality actually destroys not only the picture of the gospel, but it also destroys our intimate relationships themselves. You know, there are many expressions of this brokenness. The single person who enjoys intimacy casually, committed couples, has no bond, but their sort of commitments, they have no legal engagement. There is the married couple in which one or both spouses sees no problem in the occasional affair, whether actual or mental. And we could go on and on with this list. We know how it plays out because we know our own hearts. But I want to suggest to you that these supposed sexual freedoms in the end destroy intimacy, lead to intense relational anxiety, drastically affect one's own sense of self-worth or the worth of the other person, the partner or partners involved. It corrodes and possibly destroys the family and its bond. It makes us more selfish more self-protective, and it produces all sorts of guilt and shame. It's powerful. And what does it give in return? Temporary pleasure? Yes. A false sense of relational security? Yes. Feelings of power and control? Yes. All while attempting to imitate the relational bond and intimacy found in marriage. Imagine, if you will, To try to illustrate this, imagine, if you will, if we were to make vows every time we entered into a dalliance, a dalliance, however you say that. Um, Every time we entered into it, whether mentally or fantastically. What if we made vows? I think they would go something like this. I take you, Jane Doe, to be my partner, to have and to hold right now, and maybe again soon if I feel the urge. I promise to be your, your lusting and unfaithful partner and don't expect more. After all, my sexual urges define me. Thank you, Sigmund Freud. In plenty, but not in want, unless you have plenty and I'm in want, and then it's to my advantage, right? In joy, but not in sorrow, unless it's my sorrow and I can use you as a comfort blanket for me. Definitely not in sickness. If it means there's no intimacy, right? If I have some debilitating disease that prevents that kind of intimacy, it's off. We're off. The marriage is off. Oh, but if I am sick, I'd really appreciate some comfort and noodle soup. For as long as it suits me, or you stay pretty, or you stay handsome, or you stay rich, or you say stay strong, or you please me, or you're good in the sack. Those are horribly tragic vows. But they are the unstated vows of every form of adultery, which ultimately says, I am the most important thing, and you exist to give me pleasure. You see, God intended intimacy in marriage. In fact, he celebrates it. You go book, go look, go read the book of Song of Songs. You'll actually blush at some of the language he uses. It's fairly uses a lot of euphemisms, but it's 
fairly clear what's going on. This intimacy is good. It's meant to bring joy and foster unity between a husband and a wife. It is creative in the most, how do you say this, spectacular sense. It is the only place where there's possibility of the creation of life itself. What an amazing gift. Scripture speaks, again, euphemistically, in, of this intimacy as knowing the person. And if you know anything about the word, Hebrew word to know, it is not just, I know something about you in some sort of abstract way. Knowing in the Old Testament dealt with that intimate knowledge when God says, and he looks down at his people in Egypt and they are suffering under slavery and they cry out to him. The only sentence that it says is, and God knew. What did he know? He knew them. There's that intimacy of that language. Uh, This word carries huge freight. It's the kind of intimate knowing that only happens when we bear all before each other. And that kind of intimacy and knowing and creativity and love can only happen when we make a covenant before God. We make a sweeping relational contract that says, I am yours and you are mine despite how I feel. I will lay my life down for you and for the sake of this relationship, come hill or high water, come death itself. I'm going to do everything it takes to preserve it. Because I love you And I'm committing myself to you before God in these promises that I make. Nothing ought to break it. Jesus, in the very next section, talks about divorce, noting that the only thing that gives grounds for divorce is, in fact, adultery itself. That is how significant the union is between husband and wife. When adultery occurs, it tears at the very fabric of the union. It's like The shredding of a sail. I have to use an occasional um, nautical metaphor. It's like the shredding of a sail in a gale. One tiny little tear. What happens to the sail in that gale? Tears to shreds and blows away. What happens to the boat? Now, foundering, it is in a place where it is being tossed to and fro and is in the place of ruin. But it is in the context of those vows, a commitment that is not contingent, which enables true freedom. Freedom from always being on an audition. I've I've shared this story with a few folks. I I did some pre-marriage counseling for a fellow just and his what and his the fiance, the two two of them. And we did pre-marriage counseling, and the, the fellow in this was a fairly young believer. And had, you know, had many partners over the course of his young life. And um, they themselves, the, this, this fiancé couple, had committed themselves to not being intimate before, before marriage. And I asked him, I said, that, that must be hard for someone like you. And he said, honestly, Rob, it, it is not hard. And I said, why is that? And he said, Rob, to be honest, there was always huge anxiety. Every time... And he was a good-looking guy. He was strong. He was tall. He was uh, well-educated. He had lots of money. Like, he was everything you'd ever want in a guy, I guess, from a worldly perspective. And he said, Rob, every time I was being intimate, I felt like I was on an audition. I had such anxiety. Will they continue to love me? 
Will they, will, will, will this last? And I said, he said, for the first time in my life, I'm not worried because it's not about that. And I said, wow, that's freedom from always being on an audition. Freedom from the effects of broken intimacy. Freedom from guilt and shame. Freedom from selfishness and abuse. Freedom from fear of losing a relationship. Freedom from slavery to sexual addiction in whatever form it takes. But here's the thing. Many of us know the brokenness of our sexuality. And a sermon like this can leave us feeling worse for not having the kind of intimacy I'm describing. And maybe you're single or divorced or a widow or a widower and you think it feels like bondage to be alone. How is this God's intention for me? Sex is a powerful thing, but it is not the ultimate thing. It does not define us. Jesus was never married. He never enjoyed the kind of intimacy that we're describing Paul was never married, never enjoyed the kind of intimacy. In fact, he argued that there's a certain kind of freedom that a person has who isn't married, doesn't have the burdens of relationship, doesn't have all that, and is able to be free to be used in whatever God has for them. But there's something else. The intimacy of marriage is a picture of something far more spectacular. And this vision requires faith. It means looking at the world and all that it offers in sexual freedom and says there's something that is mine that is far better, far more intimate, far more passionate, far more satisfying. And while I haven't experienced yet, I know it lies ahead. I've experienced it in part. This is where I'm ending. After Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, sexual brokenness entered the world and it entered our hearts. And when we read a passage like Matthew 5 and the call to radical mortification of a particular sin, we can lose heart. We can think, is there any hope of change for me? How can I bear the guilt and shame? How can I face the pressures of the world? But here is the hope. Christ did eat with sinners and tax collectors. He befriended the woman at the wedding and offered her freedom and life living water and he says I will be cut off that you might not endure hell that your adultery might be forgiven that you might enjoy intimacy and union with the living God once again your sexuality does not define you Christ does he weds himself to his church and we sing with Solomon I am my beloved's And he is mine. His banner over me is love. He has established a covenant relationship with me, not based on my righteousness, but on his. Not my faithfulness, but his. And he has given me his spirit that enables me to actually put to death sin. And to live a new life. Transformed by the gospel. Praise God. Apart from his faithful, intimate, self-sacrificing, covenant-making love... I would still be in bondage. But in him, we are set free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we confess to you that we are broken people. Broken in our sexuality. 
And yet we thank you that you made covenant relationship with us. You renewed and restore us. And that you give us your spirit and you help us to put to death our former self, our old man, that sin that still still gets in, doesn't mess, but Lord, root it out. Help us to bring to light those things that are ugly so that the light of your gospel might shine on it and it might be done away with. Lord, help us in our weakness. Give us strength to fight the battle and to rest in you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.